For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. We're in Romans 10, talking specifically about the subject of religion uh, in contrast to the idea of a relationship. Religion is something that you do. It's sort of an outward uh, uh, ritualistic, formalistic uh, set of rules that you follow. Relationship is connecting personally with God. The context for this study, we've been working all the way through the book of Romans, and really, you know, we're at the part where Paul has been talking for some time about the issue of how to walk with God. How to grow in your relationship with God. Once you become a Christian and you receive Christ as your Savior, that pays for your sins and sets you up to be able to have an intimate, personal relationship with the Creator of the universe. And that He wants to move into your life and He wants to empower you to um, be what He had in mind when He created the human race. To be what the book of Genesis calls an image bearer. That you would reflect the nature and the character of who God is in the lives of other people, and that you would be able to draw near to Him in intimacy. And what Paul has been laying out here is really the idea of walking with God is understanding that God is trustworthy. We walk with God by depending on God. We depend on God by believing that He is trustworthy, that He keeps His promises, that He is there for us, that He does care for us, and that He is willing to give us the power, the spiritual power to live in a way that we could never live apart from Him. And so the flow of thought uh, of, of Paul's argument as he's gone through Romans 5, 6, 7, 8, has been about dependence, about learning to trust, about understanding the promises of God and how He will do these things through us. And now he, we're in the section that comes after that, which is about the sovereignty of God, that God is so powerful that He can come through. When He says, you know, that I will never leave you nor forsake you, what he, he has the power to ensure that no matter what happens in your life, that he is not going to go anywhere. You can't be ripped from his grasp. You cannot be taken away from him. You cannot be hidden from him. He will be there for you. He will be involved with you. And he has the resources to help you change. And that led, last week, as we were understanding that, it led Paul to reflect on his own countrymen. Because he was a Hebrew. And he was thinking about the fact that God had made some promises to Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. In Genesis 12.1, God promises Abraham, he says, I will bless those who bless you, I will curse those who curse you. He said, your descendants, Abraham, will be greater than the sands of the seashore, than the stars in the sky. And through you, a mighty nation will arise. And through that nation and through your descendants, Abraham, all the nations, all the people of the earth will be blessed. It's an incredible promise. It's called the Abrahamic Covenant. And it's big. It's a big deal. Uh, the whole Old Testament 
really revolves around God making this promise to this man and then understanding how his descendants, which eventually become to known as the Jewish people or the nation of Israel, how God keeps his promises. God keeps his promise to Abraham and that he is worthy and able to do that. And so Paul, as he's talking about this and how we can't be ripped away from the love of God, how God always keeps his promises, understands that his readers, many of his readers who are Jewish people themselves, who are asking themselves this question, is this Jesus the Messiah? Does the teachings of Jesus fit with the teachings of the Old Testament? with the teachings of the patriarchs and the fathers, with the religion of my childhood, of my country. And they say, well, what if we don't follow Jesus? What happens to us then? And so Paul is addressing that issue, saying the way that you understand how God works and the sovereignty of God and the way that God chooses people can be broken up into two different categories. There's the way that God uses nations, which was what our entire time together last week was about. How he uses the nation of Israel, how he used Egypt, how he used Syria, how he used Babylon, how he used Greece, how he used Rome, right? There were all these ways that God sovereignly orchestrates history to manifest himself, to create situations that would draw all men to himself, that would, that would show people the greatness of who he is. And that we don't really have any say over that. God in the big picture is absolutely sovereign and he accomplishes his purposes. And that's how he uses nations. But that individually, each and every one of us has a choice to make about our relationship with God, that we have this thing called free will, and that while God is powerful enough to make us do whatever he wants, there's no question about that, he has chosen to give us choice because he desires relationship. He desires love, and love requires freedom. And so he's wrestling with, Paul is wrestling with, how then are we to think about Israel? They were clearly chosen by God to write the scriptures. They, they revealed so much of our understanding about who God is through the Old Testament. They have established this nation. They are to be a blessing to the whole world, and they are to be the people through which the Messiah would arrive. I mean, part of this promise is that God says, Abraham, I will be one of your descendants. Which, if we think about that for too long, we're like, what? Whew, gets a little crazy. But he's saying, I'm going to be born, and I'm going to be a Jewish man. I'm going to come into the world scene, and it is that promise, actually, that fulfills the idea that the descendants of Abraham, that through them all nations of the earth would be blessed because they would bring about the Messiah who would die for the sins of the world and make it so that everyone can be close to God if they choose it. But yet, as individuals, many Israelites were rejecting Christ as the Messiah. Paul himself was originally a persecutor of the Christian faith, a murderer of Christians trying to stamp out 
what they saw as an offshoot of the Jewish faith, a heresy that had to be stopped until he met Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And he realized he was playing for the wrong team. He changed his ways and he began to preach Jesus Christ crucified. But his heart and his love for his own people was still very much a part of his daily life. He loves his people. And what about the promises of God? What would these descendants of Abraham do? And what would God do regarding them? He said, and we read this last week in Romans 9, 6 through 7, but it's not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. And you say, what? That's really weird language. He's saying there's more than a biological connection here at play. Just because, he says, they're not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Israel is a name. It's a proper name, right? Jacob, one of Abraham's near descendants, was renamed Israel as he wrestled with God. And so Israel is a proper name, and it's a nation. And he's saying, we're not all Israel, you know, those who are descended from Israel. If you're descended from Jacob, it doesn't mean that you're necessarily right with God. And we're not all uh, descended or not, not all children because they're from Abraham's descendants. Just because you have a biological connection to Abraham doesn't mean that you're right with God. And he's actually arguing, and this has always been the case. It's a fundamental misunderstanding of that promise in Genesis 12.1. If you think that if you're just somewhere on the, the, the family tree, you got a guy named Abraham, you and God are cool. He says, no, that wasn't ever part of the program. Being born into a religion or a nation doesn't give you a personal relationship with God. It might give you certain advantages. You might be born with some, in, a, in a place where God is better understood, where God is more fully revealed. But if it boils down to a personal relationship, if it boils down to faith, it boils down to choice. You had no choice what family you would be born into, what religion you would be born into, what nation you would be born into. So it, the where you are born is insufficient. And this was one of the major misunderstandings of Jesus' time, where the nation of Israel was, was very proud of who they were, that they had come back, right? They had been wiped out by the Assyrians and the Babylonians and then brought back together, and now they've been conquered by the Romans, and there's this tension about are they going to continue and what's it going to look like, but they are like, we are the chosen people, and they think the reason that their nation was wiped out earlier was the, by the Assyrians was that they weren't religious enough. They've drawn the conclusion that we didn't try hard enough and we, didn't, we, didn't, uh, we weren't clean enough. We weren't righteous enough. And so God punished us. So now what we have to do is we have to be super religious. And we have to do all the washings and all the cleansings and we have to be pure and clean and the fact that the Romans are at our door and we're now paying taxes to them might mean that God is going to judge us and punish us again. 
So we have to be more righteous. But you see, Abraham, from the very beginning, he was made right with God. He had a relationship with God, not because of his washings or his rituals, but because of his faith. Galatians 3, 6 through 7, James says this, even so Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he's just quoting Genesis. It's right there in the passage. Abraham was reckoned as righteousness because of what he believed, because of his faith. Therefore, he says, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. If you want to be a son of Abraham, make the choice that Abraham made to trust God, to believe God, to draw near personally and relationally to God. That's what the true descendants of Abraham are, according to James. Religion, ritual, being born in Israel were not enough because choice matters. Jesus taught the same thing. Let's look at Matthew 3, 8 through 9. Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that these stone, from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Your, your genetic connection to Abraham doesn't, Make you right with God, is what Jesus is telling them. If God wanted to, he could turn these stones into genetic descendants of Abraham. He's that powerful. He's sovereign. And so don't count on where you were born or your family history. It's about faith. So we get to Romans 10, 1 through 4. And we read Paul talking about this same issue. And he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. He said, there are no more zealous people. Wow, this is falling apart in many ways. There are no more zealous people than the people of my nation, is what Paul is saying. They are striving after God. Striving after Him. That word zeal in the Greek is zeal. <laughs> it's one of those words that we just took from the Greek, zealous, right? And it means to strive earnestly after, to have great concern for, right? He's saying that they have, they're very serious about God. They're very... Uh, desirous of knowing God, but not in accordance with knowledge, not according to what God has revealed, but according to something else. That something else is tradition. So they do all these things and they work so hard to make sure that they are righteous and that they follow the right things and they do the right things. But their relationship with God is missing. Having interest in religion or zeal for religious acts is not the same as faith. It's not the same, according to the Bible. You see, religion, ritual, has its place. And the Bible certainly has rituals, right? So it would make no sense at all to say the Bible is against ritual. No, there are quite a few rituals, especially in the Old Testament. 
washings and sacrificings. You know, they are there. But the point is not what you do. The point is why you do it. The rituals are there as monuments, as teaching tools to help people understand fundamental important truths about their relationship with God. And what happens is, and men have always done this, are still doing this, is we take these rituals and we make them the point. Why? Because a ritual is something we can do. It's something that comes within our control. And we start defining our goodness, our godliness, by our obedience to these outward forms. And we begin neglecting the nurturing of our hearts. We demand that other people follow God. And we compare ourselves. Are you as religious as I am? Do you go to church as much as I do? Do you put as much money in the basket when it passes by? Do you help the poor the way that I do? Because it enables us to compete. It enables us to elevate ourselves and lower others. And what could be more human than that? That's something that's in the brokenness and the ugliness of who we are. And we begin to use religion as a competition Imagining that we're closer and closer and closer to God because we've earned it. And raising ourselves up above others and obsessing about the minutiae, the small things that are within our control and forgetting about the big things like the fact that my heart is far from God. And Jesus looked at that in his day and he said, what you're doing is you're straining out the gnat. There's a tiny little fly in your wine and you make sure to get that out. But you leave the camel, the huge thing. You ignore that, which is exactly what religion will do. How could this happen? How could this happen with the descendants of Abraham, the people that are responsible for revealing all of this about God? How could they lack knowledge about God? Well, it's it's actually a problem all the way through because they're human beings. And they're drawn, like you and I are drawn, to outward things that they can control while wanting to ignore the inward things. The prophet Isaiah would say to them, in Isaiah 29, 13, the Lord said, because this people drew near to me with their words and they honor me with lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. He's saying, you guys do all the things of the tradition and you do all the rituals, but your hearts are far from me and your heart is what I want. I want you, not a sacrifice. I want you, not a tithe. You are who I want to know, are who I want to relate to, are who I want to move in your life. And you just want to go through the steps, the outward motions, and you wall your hearts off to me. Psalm 5, 15 through 17, or 51, 15 through 17 says this, O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praises, for you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. 
You are not pleased with burnt, with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh, that you will not despise. Old Testament saying, I get it, God. These sacrifices, these rituals, that's not the point. The point is our hearts. And I want to give my heart to you, Lord. That's the difference between religion and relationship. Doing religious acts without understanding, without understanding the meaning, that wasn't just something that the nation of Israel did. We see it alive and well in our community today. Going to church every Sunday can be a very religious act, a habit, something we do, something we feel bad if we don't do. And something that we think, if I do that, then God is happy with me this week. And if I don't do it, he's sad. And he's keeping a ledger. He's keeping an attendance, right? And I do not have a gold star by my name, right? <laughs> See how we reduce God into something like a, just a crabby first grade teacher? Something that we just, you know, want to appease. Not something we want to draw near to. We think, oh, well, you know, I'll go, you know, if we miss a bunch of Sundays, then, you know, and we say, well, well, at least Christmas and Easter, that's what we'll do. Because those are the important ones, right? And so we'll make Christmas and Easter, and we'll, we'll be sure to go to church. Well, which church are you going to go to? Whatever's close. What do they believe? Well, just go to church on Christmas and Easter. That's what you do. My parents did that. Good people go to church. On Christmas and Easter. It's religious thinking. It's outward observance. But where's your heart? What do you do? You get dressed up and you go and you sit and it's like, oh man, why does this have to be twice a year? Maybe, maybe just Easter, right? Because you're not there to relate to God. You're there to do some kind of bizarre outward performance. Saying the Lord's Prayer. There's an example. How many of us know the Lord's Prayer and knew the Lord's Prayer before we ever got anywhere near a church? We used to say it in football practice. Because it was like this thing we would do where it was like some kind of magical chant, right, that would give us power to crush our enemies. Right? God would be on our side if we said the Lord's Prayer. Why? Uh, what does it mean, the Lord's Prayer? You know, we never stopped to think about any of that. It was just something we did. Let's look at the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, 9 through 13. He's instructing them on how to pray. He says, Pray in this way, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. How many of you finished that 10 times faster than I just read it in your brains? And you had the these and thous, right? This is, let's understand what this is. They've asked him to teach them how to pray, and he's giving them an example. Oh, and we could spend weeks talking about the beauty of the different aspects of prayer that Jesus lays out here. But it's not supposed to be a prayer that they memorize and repeat. 
It's supposed to be a template for understanding how to relate to God. My Father in heaven, it starts. My intimate, personal dad, right? And then we talk about these different things. And then in one of the greatest ironies of all Scripture, he says, after giving them this, the very next verse, and when you're praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. And what do we do? We're like, that prayer's awesome. We should repeat it over and over and over again. (laughs) For they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. Do you see how we've taken the object lesson of relational talking to Dad, our Dad in heaven, and turned it into a mechanistic ritual devoid of relationship and devoid of meaning? And that's what we do with religion. The point of ritual is meaning. That's the point. Let's look at, there are only a few New Testament rituals. Let's take the example of communion. Communion means a lot of things to a lot of different people. A lot of places you got to go and you got to take communion every week. And if you're not a believer and you come, you cannot partake, you're out. And there have been wars fought and people killed over whether the body and the blood really becomes the body and the blood or whether it's symbolic or what does it mean. And there are many who think you have to do this. You have to do communion or God will not accept you. But let's look at the scripture. Luke twenty-two nineteen, 19, upper room. When he took it some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them. He said, this is my body, which was given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When you take communion, when you eat bread, think about my body and how it was broken for you. And when you drink wine, think about my blood and how it was shed for you. Remember me. That's the point of it. The whole point of communion is so that in those moments we would turn back in our hearts and say, wow, God broke his body and shed his blood because he loves me. And that's a good thing to remember, to keep in perspective. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four through 25, it says, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body for what you do in remembrance to me. In the same way he took the cup after the supper, saying the cup in the new covenant is my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. How often should we do communion? As often as you do it. That's the biblical instruction. But the meaning behind it is beautiful. It's remember what I've done for you. Reflect on that. And we turn it into something to kill each other over, to divide, to exclude, and to say, well, if you don't do this, then God doesn't accept you. And we turn it into a religious act, believing falsely that we can somehow earn God's love. And that's the problem. That's the whole problem with the religious system here, is when we think we can be made right with God through ritual, what we're really saying is, I can earn my righteousness. I can earn. God, I will do that. I will go to church every Sunday 
twice on Christmas and Easter, and I will take communion, and I will get baptized, and then you will love me, right? God's like, I already love you. I loved you before you did any of those things. Those things were, are to teach you, are to show you something, but they don't do anything. They don't change you unless you understand them. And then it's the understanding that changes you, not the ritual. Paul goes on in, ver- in chapter 10, verse 3, he says, For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Through their religion, they are trying to earn God's acceptance. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Choice, not ritual. And so the fundamental problem with the religious people of Paul's day is they are so in love with their religion and their ritual, they've forgotten love. They've forgotten choice. They've forgotten faith. That it's about what you believe, just as it was about what Abraham believed. Not what family you're born into, what rituals you practice. Well, if I don't do all those things, then how can I know that I'm right with God? How do I know it's as simple as what we're saying, that it's about faith? And how can I know that my faith is enough? Well, see, Paul, he just tracks. Those are exactly the questions he's anticipating here. He goes on in 10.5, For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness, which is based on the law, shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. So again, he says it in a way that's kind of hard for us to follow in that, that, that translation. But what he's saying is this. We can know very easily if we are right with God. It's a very simple question. Do you want to know that you are right with God? And he's saying the problem is the question that you ask is flawed. Your question, who will go to heaven and who will go to hell, is the wrong question. That's not the right question. And what's the religious answer to that? The religious answer is, well, uh, it could be you. But if you're really, really good, it may not be you. You could maybe go to heaven if you work hard enough. And what does that do that sends us in a frantic state of more ritual, more religion, more work? I do and I do and I do. Now will God accept you? Well, you can certainly hope. You could make a good case. Look at how well you're doing compared to everyone else. But who can know such things? And there are millions who live on this gerbil wheel of ritual, not knowing that they are loved. The question is not who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. You want to know whether or not you're saved, Paul says. Answer this question. Is the word of God in your mouth and in your heart? That's the question. 
Am I right with God? Well, is the word of God in your mouth and in your heart? And if the answer is yes, then you are saved. Look at what he says next, 10.9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. You see, religion doesn't want you to know if you are saved because religion believes that fear and shame are a good way to motivate you to do more. And if we just tell you, you're loved, you're forgiven, you're accepted, and you are good with God forever, how will we get you to do the things we think you should do? But that is what God has done. Do you believe that you need a Savior? Do you understand that you are broken? You are a rebel? That you are imperfect and deserving of God's judgment? Do you understand that God is perfect and judges all evil, and that includes you and it includes me? And then are you willing before the Lord to say, I am a sinner who needs a Savior. I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins and that I need forgiveness. Then you are saved. Then you are forgiven. And you cannot out God's grace. And you say, that's just really simple. The simplicity of that is suspicious. It is. And I think, it's, I think what really makes it, that makes it suspicious is it's clearly not written by men. This is not the way that human beings work. We wouldn't give you everything and ask nothing in return. No person would do that. But we're not dealing with a person. We're dealing with something much greater than ourselves who literally would offer you everything and ask nothing in return. That is who God is. It's an unbelievable promise. It's an incredible promise. It's equally effective, and it's offered to all people everywhere. No matter where you're born, what your religion, nationality, race, socioeconomic background, it matters not. You can receive this gift because God loves you and wants a relationship with you. He closes this section in 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, between a Jewish man and the rest of the world. For the same Lord is the Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. Faith. And for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's not written by men. Men say you have to be like us or you're out. You have to be on our team or you're the enemy. God says, you're all my children and I love every one of you. But I will not kick down the door of your life. I will not force you into a relationship with me. You have to choose it. You don't have to be born in the right country. You don't have to be born in the right family. You don't have to speak the right language. Go to the right church. 
And you don't have to strive to continue to earn God's love. You only have to hear the message of salvation through Jesus Christ and believe. Many of you, I know, have experienced the trap of religion. And we need to understand it in its proper context, too. Well-meaning rituals are how these things often start. They often start with really cool ideas and purposes behind them. They have, many of them, their roots in deeply biblical theology, theological points that are important. I want to show you a quick example as we close. Iconography is something that we're not real familiar with here. We don't have any icons yet around here, right? Uh, And historically, uh, they're a real divisive thing, right? This is called uh, Christ Pantocrator. And it's a famous icon that you would see in a lot of formalistic, ritualistic churches. And what's happened was, this kind of artwork was originally designed, it was painted on, on wood panels in churches because they teach really cool theological lessons. Remember that it's only in recent history that human beings have been lit- become literate. For decades, hundreds of years, centuries, the church had the challenge of teaching people important theological truths who couldn't read. And this was a way that they did it. If you look at this closely, you'll notice some things about it. One is, it's asymmetrical. Why does Jesus have a weird eye? That's intentional. That's not like a bad artist, right? Jesus is both fully God and fully man. He is two natures and one person. And the eye is the window of the soul. And so if you were a medieval person who they were, they was illiterate, they would show you this picture and they would say, when you look at this, remember that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. And you could look at that every day and be reminded of that truth. Kind of cool. This is a symbol for blessing, that Jesus blesses us. He wants good things for us. And the word over here represents judgment. And what this is saying is, Jesus Christ is fully God, fully man. He blesses and he judges. And if you read your scripture, you know every, every bit of that is true. And if you have it explained to you, then you can remember those things and those truths in a simple form that's a beautiful piece of art. But what happened with the icons? They stopped explaining what they meant. And it just became a holy thing in and of itself, a relic of some kind, where you go to church and you stare at the icon, and you have no idea what it means, but you're staring because if you stare enough, then good spiritual vibes will come upon you, and God loves when you stare at icons. And now your concept of who God is has been changed. And what it means to please Him has changed. And so these well-meaning rituals designed to teach spiritual truth become things that we must do to earn God's approval. And do you see how the power, the beauty of it is turned on its head and now it's a device of evil to deceive people about who God is. 
Those things become things we do because it's what our parents did. I don't know why, but my dad would go into the church and he would stare at that photo for 20 minutes every weekend. So I love my dad. I respect him. So I'm going to go and I'm going to stare at that photo, that painting, every weekend for 20 minutes because I want to be like dad. And God's like, fully God, fully man, blesses and judges. We miss it. Because the meaning has drained out of it. And these rituals become meaningless outward actions that actually work against faith because we don't know that God is calling out for a personal relationship. We think God wants us to stare at the painting on the wall in the church. And you can see why it becomes so devastating, counterproductive to faith. And it becomes necessary to be informed. It doesn't mean that the icon is evil. If we go back and we explain the icon, then it serves a purpose. And it becomes beautiful again. Until we forget and it fades from memory. And our children worship it and they don't know why. Paul says in Romans 10.14, How then will they call on him who they have not believed? If you think it's ritual, how can you call out relationally to God? How will they believe in whom they have not heard? When the rituals don't speak, they have no power. And how will they hear without a preacher, without someone to explain what this means and why it's important? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news of good things. Religious people have so much zeal, so much desire. They work hard to do God's stuff. But they don't know what they're doing or why they're doing it. Well, it's no different here, right? Our culture... It's very similar. We began as a pretty Christian culture. People coming over to the new world to seek religious freedoms. The pilgrims, the Quakers. People trying to establish something where they could worship God according to biblical truth. And then over the years, we became a post-Christian society. Meaning that we have sort of this we have uh, In God We Trust written on our money. And we say, well, okay. And we have flags in our courtrooms. And we used to have Ten Commandments hanging around. And we say, that, those were relics of who we were. But are they who we are? And we have people who go to church and do lots of meaningless ritual. And they go on Sunday morning and they're sure to point their finger and judge those who don't. And they try to follow the rules and they do religious things, but they don't know why they do them. They just do them because it's something my grandparents did. And I would argue, I think we've, we've moved past that as a culture. And we don't even have this anymore. And we've gone back to what I would call a pre-Christian society where people don't even know what the Bible is. Most people that I know 
don't understand or even have the beginning of understanding of what the Bible teaches. They have no clue and no understanding about what true Christianity, true faith is. Because no one has ever shared it with them and demonstrated it to them. Paul had the same thing. He had the religious types who thought they knew what faith was, but what they knew was religion and ritual without knowledge. And he had the ignorant types, those who had no idea and needed to be taught. And that's God's plan is to send you and I and him and all of us out to set the record straight. God wants to use us to reach both. How will he get the message out? Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe what I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. His plan for setting the record straight is to send us. Paul put it this way in 2 Cor 5, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him that knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So what, how do we do this? How do we go? Well, we have to understand ritual really, is neither good nor bad. It has its purpose when used understandably, with understanding. It can communicate awesome truth. It can also mislead generations of people. And if you go out to your local person who's all about ritual, and you try to be like, your whole faith and your whole understanding is ignorant and unbiblical, and based off of tradition and not the teachings of Jesus, that will not be a lovely conversation. (laughs) And that will not further the purposes of God. But if you take the time to understand their rituals and what they mean, and can explain to them the meaning, and maybe help them see the truths that were intended behind those rituals, you may find that you have an open door an open door for helping them to see that what God wants is more than religion, it's a relationship. A relationship that according to Scripture can only come about through Jesus Christ. He said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He is the only way, and he is a relational way. What's Paul's point? He says, believe and have faith in Christ and be confident in your salvation. God doesn't want you wondering. He wants you to know if you confess with your mouth and believe with your heart, Jesus is Lord, you are saved. And he wants you to live in that confidence. And he wants you to go and help others who have lost their way, find their way back to God, no matter where they started. And about Israel, what he's saying about Israel is the same. They're the same as everyone else. God used their nation and has used their nation for an amazing purpose to accomplish incredible things. But as individuals, they have the same truth, the same choice to wrestle with as anyone else. 
Will they let God pay for their sins or will they choose to pay for them themselves? As a nation, I would argue also, they still have a special role to play in God's plan. This is somewhat debated among Christians, but I believe so because I believe that God keeps his promises. And like Romans eleven twenty nine 29 says, the gift and the call of God are irrevocable. And I think the fact that we have a nation of Israel today, after it was gone for almost 2,000 years, is proof that there are miracles and that God keeps his promises and that he's not done with the descendants of Abraham. Thanks, God, for um, all the cool prayers we've had here. Thanks that um, you hear them, that you know us, and that you draw near to us. And um, we have you in our lives. We pray, God, for anyone here that doesn't know you. We just pray that they'll hear you knocking on the door of their heart, that they'll open that door, God, that they'll uh, know uh, you and that they will hear and see what you need them to see so that they can come to faith. And we pray for um, the rest of us, God. We pray that we can continue to walk with you, depend on you, and remember your sovereignty so that we can trust that you are good and that you keep your promises. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.